Well, we've got a theme going through Eastertide. Um, we're still celebrating Easter, and it's all about a new world beginning. And that means change. And change is difficult. Uh, William Willimon, um, who's a bishop in the United Methodist Church, tells a story in a sermon about retirement. His father-in-law had been a United Methodist pastor of some churches in South Carolina. He was very respectable, wore a black suit, you know, and a white shirt, and went around town uh, you know, taking care of his churches. But then he retired, and he bought a, a camping trailer to make a retirement celebration trip with his wife from South Carolina to New England. But on the way, he made a wrong turn, and he found himself pulling the trailer down the middle of Manhattan. He was lost. Uh, he didn't know which way to turn. And so a car pulled up alongside of him, blew its horn, and the driver shouted, Old man, I wish you'd figure out where you're going or just get out of the way. And Willeman wrote this. My father-in-law said that he thought to himself, I'm up here in New York, a long way from South Carolina. Nobody knows that I was a Methodist preacher. I'm retired. So he rolled down his window, looked over at the man in the car beside him and said, and I wish you would go to hell. <laughs> Retirement, he writes, it's a whole new life. So, well, I raise that because in our Acts reading, Peter is not experiencing a whole new life of retirement, but he is experiencing a whole new life and a whole new way of eating uh, with dinner guests. And it hasn't been easy for him or for the church at that time. It reminded me of the 1967 movie, Who, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you know, with Sidney Poitier, uh, Catherine Hepburn, and Spencer Tracy, a memory which I guess uh, places me in a chronological category close to retirement. So. But, um, but then my mind also went back to some uh, situations in, in our lives. Um, I remember when um, I was dating uh, Trebekah, again, last millennium, and uh, I was checking out her kin down in Batesville, Mississippi, and uh, we, we were eating lunch one day at her aunt's house, and the African-American maid had come to do the weekly cleaning and ironing and such, and she was also eating lunch in the adjacent room. And I remember her aunt, uh, you know, just talking to the maid in the adjacent room while we were eating lunch in our place. And then I also remembered a time years later in Khartoum, Sudan, uh, when we were there the first time, we had a houseboy. Um, I mean, that's what they called him, and yet he had a bachelor's degree in engineering and uh, couldn't get a job because he was a Christian. And so we hired him to do cleaning and go to the market. And, and by way of celebrating his service to us in his life, uh, we invited him and his pregnant wife to dinner the last night we were there at our house. And I, I, I'll never forget how uncomfortable she was eating at the table with us because she was eating at a table at which men were present in that culture. Well, what, Luke, um, what would Luke have thought about those two incidents, Batesville, Mississippi, and Khartoum, Sudan, in my past experience? 
Well, I think the answer we heard in the text, because Luke emphasizes it. He actually goes through this same story twice in the chapters that surround what we've heard, and it will involve three visions, seven witnesses, three escorts, and the Holy Spirit. See, Cornelius, he, he was an outsider on two counts. He was a Gentile, but he was also a Roman, part of the Roman occupying force that the Jews hated. But he was also a devout man who feared God. He was kind of a, an outside insider. And then Peter had this dream, and it's very upsetting, and he's puzzled, because dietary laws kept Jews separate. And to leave behind those dietary laws was to forsake the faith, let alone to violate custom and Jewish law by eating at the same table with somebody who was uncircumcised. In fact, when headquarters heard the news that the Gentiles had also accepted the gospel, they were excited and wanted to hear the story until they found out that Peter actually ate at the same table with those uncircumcised, even if they were baptized. A reaction, you know, like Catherine Hepburn's when, you know, she found out that her daughter's fiancé was black, or like Spencer Tracy's character when he found out that her his, that the fiancé's parents were coming to dinner. Something that, um, for those of you who don't know that movie, would be as shocking in the, uh, now if Donald Trump found out that Hillary Clinton was coming to join him at the White House for dinner. <laughs> it would be shocking. Well, Peter goes with Cornelius' messengers, but he's not sure where this is all headed. But still he says, okay, here I am, Lord. Here I am. And the story goes back and forth between Peter and Cornelius with God orchestrating the situation. But, but here's the question. Is this that we heard a story about the conversion of Cornelius or about the conversion of Peter? It's a trick question. It's about the conversion of both of them. You see, conversion to Christ has to do with who will eat at our table. In this story, old divisions are broken down, and those who were once at odds with each other are now at peace. Peter says, I now know, I now know that God shows no partiality, no distinction. And so it wasn't really about clean and unclean food after all. It was about clean and unclean people. Peter is experiencing conversion, the daily turning. Because you see, conversion is not at the end of a process. Conversion is the beginning of a continual process of change until we finally reach what we heard about in the book of Revelation. In my book, Monk Habits for Everyday People, I mentioned Sister Irene Knowles' description of one of the Benedictine vows. It's conversatio morum, which is loosely translated conversion of life. And she said, it means the daily willingness to turn and to be turned together. She said, the willingness to be a good example, to live every day in humility and wisdom and peace, praying all the while that Christ will bring us all together to everlasting life. 
In other words, conversion, she's saying, is a communal process, not a one-time event or an individual event. It's ongoing and daily because sin is so deep-seated in us that it requires a lifetime of conversions before we are changed into the new creation that God has in mind for us. And notice Sister Irene said it's not just the willingness to turn, but also the willingness to be turned. Because conversion is primarily the work of God. You see that in this story, which Peter must have learned when he later wrote in his first letter, by his great mercy, we have been born to a living hope. God takes us just as I am, as that old uh, gospel hymn said. But the encounters with God do not leave us just as we are. God loves us too much not to accept us as we are, but God loves us too much not to leave us just as we are. In Peter's case, conversion began when Jesus called him after a fishing expedition. And it continued, his conversion continued when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then it ramped up again when Jesus reaffirmed Peter after his threefold denial. And now, the God revealed in Jesus Christ turns him again, away from a life of cultural discrimination to a life of table fellowship in the church. A church which sees little gap, a church which sees little gap between the gospel and the way life is in our fallen culture doesn't need any conversion. It's stuck. But if the church hopes for more than just the status quo out there, for a new heaven and a new earth, then the church has to be open to the cost of discipleship, of continued conversion, reformation, change toward God's telos, God's end. Conversion, you see, isn't the end of faith. Conversion is the beginning of our faith that continues. And so Peter says, and you heard it in the text, who is I to stand in God's way? And after a bit of stunned silence by the church, the text says that they praised God. In other words, they said amen. They agree. I'm so glad that I am in a church that doesn't stand in God's way when some of its members want to welcome refugees. I am so glad that I am in a church that does not stand in God's way when it celebrates the ordination of women whom God has gifted and called to the ministry of word and sacrament. And I am glad that I am in a church that will not stand in God's way by putting limits on the love of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. You and I have no authority to place limits on the love and grace of Jesus Christ. In his book, Christianity Rediscovered, an American Roman Catholic priest, Vincent Donovan, tells the story of uh, being sent in in the late 1960s to evangelize the Maasai people of Tanzania. He describes how a series of communities came to grasp the significance of the Eucharist and how that liturgy of the Eucharist, this dinner, this table, changed the way that they saw everything. 
But at first it wasn't easy. It was change. Here's what he wrote. Maasai men had never eaten in the presence of Maasai women. In their minds, the status and condition of women were such that the very presence of women at the time of eating was enough to pollute any food that was present. How then was the Eucharist possible? If ever there was a need for the Eucharist as a saving sign of unity, it was here. Here in the Eucharist, we were at the heart of the unchanging gospel that I was passing on to them. They were free to accept the gospel or reject it. But if they accepted it, they were accepting the truth that in the Eucharist, there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. They came to accept it. That table radically changed their lives. Because of who was invited to the Lord's table, the men now saw the woman in a new way and as a result treated them differently. So this is radical stuff we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about brotherhood or tolerance. Mere tolerance doesn't require a church. Mere tolerance doesn't require the Alpha and Omega to make it happen. In our gospel lesson, Jesus didn't command us, tolerate one another as I have tolerated you. Tolerance does not require a conversion. So what's going on here? Well, we've already talked about it when we talked about the Lord's table. What's going on here is what Peter proclaims in his defense when he reports what happened to the home crowd. Jesus, the ascended Lord of all, the Alpha and the Omega of revelation, creation make, makes the point that creation and redemption, the beginning and the end are linked in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were made and God is reconciling all of those things to God through Jesus Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peter's vision of the Lordship of Christ ruling as creator over everything that has been made and will be redeemed means that Christ isn't Lord over just part of creation. Jesus Christ is Lord over all of creation, everything in this world. Peter comes to understand that when he says God shows no partiality, so that in any nation, any people group, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God, Acts 10.35. Cornelius, a Gentile and part of the Roman occupying force, is included, not because he's a nice person, not because he's tolerated, but because he and Peter and the church have been turned to a new beginning by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And just as Peter had a vision of a pile of meat coming down, I don't know, DoorDash, I don't know what it was. Just as that, John, when, when he writes the book of Revelation, he had a dream of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, composed of the people whom God said are from all the nations, bringing their glory to God. There are no nations to be disparaged in God's economy. The God who is bringing this about, who speaks in, 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 Luke, uh, in Luke's gospel, and John's, uh, and Luke Acts, and, and John in Revelation, that's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's the beginning and the end of history as we know it. 
This is the God who is in the process of making all things new. And, and that's what's going on in these visions. Just as it was happening uh, at that day in Peter's vision, something new was happening to this New Testament church. The old order is being replaced by the new. You see, it all has to do with God coming down to dwell with us mortals. The continuation of Emmanuel. God tabernacling with us, God with us, is the primary and only reason for our existence as church. And it's symbolized in the table that we eat at each week, where Jesus is present to us through the body, the, the bread and, and the wine. You see, this isn't just the brotherhood of all humanity. That's not what this is about. The God of staggering power and glory and holiness, the Alpha and the Omega, thinks that it's good to dwell with mortals like us. That's revolutionary news. And so who are we to refuse to dwell with others to whom God has given the gift of repentance? The God who has been at work in the church's life in Acts is the same God who will finish that work when he gathers up all the nations. If God desires to dwell with those who will be his people, that is all nations, who are we to refuse to dwell with them as well? It'll require faith in this God, a response like Peter's, you know, here am I, Lord. Faith, when it comes down to it, is just that breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God. Keep asking ourselves, what is God doing now? Where on earth is God going with this? And we have to keep up. <laughs> the wind blows where it wills, says John in his gospel, and the church just has to follow. And even though we know from Scripture that there's going to be a new Jerusalem, that future city, that new Jerusalem is being built right now in the present the glory of God's presence is among us, of this Emmanuel who tabernacles with us. And it should be revealed now in the way that we live with one another. God's glory is revealed in the way that we treat one another now as church. How we love one another, according to John in that gospel lesson we just heard. Love as I have loved you, says Jesus. Love as God chooses to dwell with his people. But here's the really good news. The Greek word that's translated in that verse as, love just as I have loved you, that can also be uh, translated with the word from, so that it might say this, keep on loving one another from my love for you. Keep on loving one another from my love for you. Let the love that I have had for all of you flow through you for all people. Love from its source flows out from us. Jesus doesn't say that those folks out there are going to know that we're his disciples if we work miracles, and certainly not from our bumper stickers or our T-shirts. <laughs> Jesus says they will know that you're my disciples by the love that you show one another. The single greatest missionary force in the world 
is the love that the church shows to one another. It's a whole new life. It includes people that you may not have chosen to be with if it had been up to you, because it's not up to us. It's the people of whom God says, there is no distinction. People who gather at a common table because it's Jesus who calls us to this feast. So when someone asks, guess who's coming to dinner? We'll not be shocked by the answer. We'll be excited. Because every day we are being turned by God to what God has in store. A new way of seeing things. A new disciple welcomed into our midst. A new world that God is bringing from the future into our present. And so... Let's take a cue from the story that we heard in the book of Acts. And as the church did after it heard Peter's account, let's fall silent as church for a bit and wonder what God is up to in the life of Holy Trinity Church now. Where is God turning us? And where is God going to be such that we have to catch up. Amen.